How many of you know the best is yet to come? Amen. Amen. The best is yet to come. Today, I want you to open your Bible with me to the book of Ruth, Old Testament book of Ruth. How many of you love the story of Ruth? Yeah, man, just some of you, 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 you got excited when I said that because you're like, oh, I love, I love this story. This is a story, I think, that communicates that the best is yet to come. Listen, when you look at what's happening in our world on the national level, how many of you would be honest and say it's pretty easy to get discouraged? Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, you, you, you made the mistake of turning on the news this morning. You almost lost your salvation, didn't you? Yeah, like, I got to get to church. I better close the paper, get my Bible, and just move on. It's always, it's always bad news. Listen, news travels faster today than it has ever traveled in any generation in the history of mankind. And how many of you know bad news travels the fastest? And if we allow it to, we can be inundated with what's happening on the national level. The headlines will absolutely drown you in despair if you let them. But as followers of Christ, we don't get our perspective from the headlines. We don't even get our perspective from the outlook. How many of you know we get our perspective from the uplook? Amen? We, we can look up. And, and trust the Lord. You know, the psychologist would tell you, just look within. You know, the opportunist would tell you, so just look around. The pessimist would tell you, look out. The opportunist would say, look around. The optimist would say, look ahead. But for the Christian, we say, look up. Look up. Look to Jesus. That's why I love the book of Ruth so much because while the book of Judges covers about 400 years in the, the history of the nation of Israel, uh, the book right before this, Judges covers about 400 years, but what Ruth does is Ruth zooms way in and it shows the, the hidden work of what God is doing in spite of a wayward nation. While Judges shows us the headlines of the nations and we meet characters like Deborah and Gideon and Samson, none of the characters in Ruth's story ever made the headlines. This was an unseen story of redemption being woven. The book of Ruth zooms all the way into just one specific family in the story. And it reminds us that even, even when it looks like everything is falling apart, God is still working and the best is yet to come. This book is titled Ruth and we're going to meet that character uh, in a few minutes here, but I want you to actually focus on another lady today. I don't want you to miss the story because you're focused on the title. There's another woman that I believe this story is equally all about and her name is Naomi. And the story begins with uh, moving away from God's presence Look at it with me, Ruth chapter one, verse one and two. And just so you know, my intention is that we're gonna take the next three weeks and, and study through this, uh, this incredible story together. But it begins with moving away from God's presence. It says in verse one of chapter one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
Now, this is the time in, in the days when the judges ruled, as I mentioned, it's about 400 years. It's from the time Joshua crosses the Jordan with God's people and then Joshua dies up until the point where Samuel anoints Saul to be the first king of Israel. And because we have Ruth's genealogy, we know that her story happens at the end of that 400 years. So that, that's kind of the time frame of what's happening in, in the life of God's people and so if you want to understand what's happening in, in the time when the judges ruled, all you really have to do is just let your eyes go back one page to the very last verse in the book of Judges because it says in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. So that, that's what's happening. That's, what, that's the world, that's the nation that Ruth is uh, living in, that, that Naomi is living in. Everyone did as they saw fit. There was no king. And on top of that anarchy, there's a famine. So look at verse one. It goes on to say, so because of that reality, a man, named, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of their two sons was Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. Twice in this first paragraph, it says they went from Bethlehem to Moab. Twice it says that. This is significant. Let me just tell you right out of the gate, it's a bad decision. It's a bad decision to leave Bethlehem and go to Moab. One of the reasons is because the blessing of God for his people was synonymous with the land. Like, you remember, they spent all those years going to a promised land. And when they got to that land, God said that would be the place where he would meet with them. They, they set up festivals and an annual calendar that all centered around a place, a, a, a location where God said, I'll be there. And so God's presence was connected with this land. So to leave the promised land was like leaving the promised giver. But Elimelech decides he's going to go for a while to live in Moab. Now, let me tell you about Moab. Moab is a wicked nation. It was a nation that its descendants came out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. And they went from bad to worse to the point that now the Moabites are a people that they worship false gods by sacrificing their children on an altar. And yet, when the famine comes, Elimelech rationalizes that I'm going to leave. And it says in verse 1, for a while. Now, don't get me wrong. A famine is serious. But what I want you to know is not everybody that lived in Bethlehem evacuated. In fact, Naomi's going to discover a little bit later in this chapter that they stuck it out and God provided. God was faithful to him in the lean years, but not this man. Not Elimelech. Elimelech saw that there's a famine in the land and it's a difficult season and so he rationalized, I'm just gonna go away from God's presence for a little while. You know, there's people that still do that today. Don't look at them, that would be really awkward. Just, I'm just saying, they, they're out there. It, probably in the 1130 service, but they're out there. <laughs> what do we do? We say, you know, I, I know God wants me to, I, I know I, I should make God a priority, but 
it's been a tight season. Inflation's up, the economy's up. I need the hours. I'll get back to church next season. I know I ought to prioritize God in, in my relationship, but there's just no good Christian men out there. So I'm going to find one. I'm going to get him saved. And then we're going to come. I'm just going to be outside for a little while. You understand? Like, that was a limelech. Like, I don't intend to leave God. I don't want to be a Moabite. I just want to go there for a little while because... It's a difficult time. It's a difficult season. It's exactly what Abram did. You remember in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram to be the father of many nations. And then it says in Genesis 12, verse 10, Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because there was a famine. He wasn't there long, but he was there long enough to, to get himself into a whole mess of trouble. He got caught up in a lie. His wife ended up in Pharaoh's harem. I mean, it was a bad deal. But it was just a little compromise for a little while. Can I just give you a little piece of advice today? Satan will never tempt you to do the hard thing. Like, if you're like, I don't know which one God wants me to do, Satan's not gonna tempt you to do the hard thing, okay? I mean, should I put the 10 in or the 20? Put the 20 in, friend. The devil's not tempting you to put the $10, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like the devil does not tempt you to do the hard things of following the Lord. He always wants to play to your selfish, sinful nature. And let me just say to all of us today, we need this reminder that following Jesus is not just about our safe arrival in heaven. Following Jesus is about your significance in the earth. In other words, it's not just about the destination, it's about the journey. Jesus never said, if any man would come after me, he should meet me in heaven. No, he said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This idea, the best is yet to come. I want that to ring true in your heart this fall. A deep conviction that says the best is yet to come. But let me just give a little disclaimer and say that that yet means it hasn't happened yet. And, and I want to challenge you, don't take off in the process. Don't, don't compromise even for a little while. Don't jet in the yet. All right, don't jet in the yet because God is working and God is doing something, but it's so easy for us to be like Elimelech and just start to figure it out, be like Abraham and go, you know what, I think I can, I can solve this. I know God didn't tell me to do that, but, but I think this is going to work. I'm going to just figure this out on my own. Elimelech rationalized leaving God's presence for a little while, verse one says, but then verse two ends by saying, and he lived there. That sounds pretty permanent. <laughs> like he bought a house, he planted some seed, he lived there. Worse than that, verse three says, he died there. Which is a good reminder to all of us that we never know when our next move will be our last move. So wherever you're at today, can I encourage you to make sure your next move is a move into the presence of Jesus and not away from him. Don't live your life just like, how, how, far, how far can I get from God's presence and still be safe, still be in good grace? No, no, no. We want to pursue the presence of Jesus every opportunity we have with every breath that he gives us. Listen, it's human nature to want to avoid a famine. I'm not, I don't want to dis. 
discredit the, the significance of the situation that this family was in. We want to avoid famine. We want to avoid hardship. But, but the challenge of Elimelech's life is that in the, in the effort to avoid difficult situations, you have to be careful that you aren't also avoiding the process that God put in place for your perfection. He wants to work in and through your life. The Bible says in Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. If you'll trust him, he always makes a way. And Elimelech's life ought to serve as a warning for every dad. The warning of his life is this, what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. Elimelech, Grew up in Bethlehem. He knew the things of God. He loved the Lord. But he made a compromise in a difficult season. And what for him intended to be a short season became a life for his sons. They didn't just move to Moab. They found themselves some Moabite women. And they got married. And both uh, of these boys were married, Malon and Kilion, to two Moabite women women, Orpah and Ruth, for 10 years. For 10 years, they lived in relationship. And then verse five says, both of them died. Look at verse five. Both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Small compromises lead to big consequences. The Bible says that years before, God had put it in in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23 and 3, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, not even to the 10th generation. And yet, it seemed like the right thing to do. We're living here. We're young men We ought to make the best of it. Let's go ahead and get married. Let's go ahead and start families. Dad's died. So it's up to us to carry the family name. Well, for 10 years, they were married, and apparently they couldn't have children. So, so much for that plan. And then they died. The Bible says in Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man. But in the end, it leads to death. That's why we have to be really intentional to say, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't even know how to solve this problem. I'm not even sure what I'm going to do with my family. But I know my next step is going to be towards the presence of God and not away from it. If I get that right, I can do it with faith knowing the best is yet to come. But this story begins with a move in the opposite direction from God's presence. And now there's a turn. The turn is Naomi's decision to go back to God's presence in verse six and seven. Look at it with me. It says, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. We don't know how long she was there. We know that her sons were married for at least 10 years. They might have grown up for 10 years before that. All we know is it's been a long time, and news finally gets to Naomi that God was who he said he was. 
He provided for his people. It's ironic. Bethlehem means the house of bread. They left the house of bread to find something to eat. And she finds out all these years later, God is faithful. And so it says in verse seven, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Judah means praise. Some of you, you need to make up your mind today. I'm going back to the land of praise. I'm leaving the land of complaining. I'm leaving the land of fear. I'm leaving the land of figuring this out on my own. I don't know what's gonna happen when I get there, but I'm going back to the place of praise because I have a conviction that if God's in charge, the best is yet to come. And so she goes back, it says, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, they're headed back to Judah. Now look at verse eight. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. What just happened? I mean, think about the story here. It says in verse seven that Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, they, they, they've packed and they're headed back to the house of praise. And then verse eight says, Naomi stops the caravan and says, wait a minute, you two stay here. Don't come with me. They're, they're like, they're shocked. They're, they're crying. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? Don't come with you. And I wanna tell you what I believe happened in this moment because I've seen it happen to so many people. The moment that they make up their mind to say, you know what, I, I can't live this way anymore. I can't be far from God's presence. I can't try to fix everything on my own. I gotta go back to the house of praise. I gotta give God another chance to, to supply my needs. And the moment you make that decision and start to head off, the enemy comes with condemnation and lies. And he begins to say, you waited too long. Too little, too late. You've blown it. You, you, there's nothing God, you've, you've sinned your days of grace away. God's got nothing he can do for you and you're no good for nobody. And, and all of a sudden, Naomi starts realizing that if these two girls stick with me, their life is destined for, for sadness. They're gonna be widows the rest of their life. They're gonna be childless the rest of their lives. The moment you set out on the road back to God's presence and discouragement begins to set in. The devil starts telling you, God cannot work in your life. And I think verse eight and nine are a perfect picture of what it looks like to see a struggling Christian discouraged in their faith. Because look at the words. It, it's not that she's lost her faith, she's still praying for her daughters-in-law. In verse eight, she says, may the Lord show you kindness. In verse nine, may the Lord grant that each of you find rest. But while she's saying, I want God to bless you, she's believing he can't bless me. There's so many people living in that reality. You go, no, I, I got faith. God's still good. God can do miracles, but I'm not going to the altar for prayer this morning. I've been dealing with this for 15 years. And you see a, a, a Christian struggling to apply what they believe to their own life. That's Naomi. She's struggling. If that's you today, if you say, man, you just, you just told my story, Pastor Aaron. Can I tell you today, God, he loves you. 
He still loves you. You haven't been disqualified from grace. You haven't been disqualified from his plan and from his purpose for your life. He loves even you. And the best is yet to come. If you're not dead, God's not done. He's not done. In fact, that's, that's the true love story of this book. Some of you, you love this story because you love the love story. You know there's another character coming named Boaz. And Boaz is the guy that's gonna redeem Ruth. She's not gonna be a childless widow. God's gonna restore her for her faith. And we're gonna see that story play out. But can I tell you, the bigger love story in the book of Ruth is God's unending love for Naomi. The next portion of the story, it explains the significance of a Hebrew marriage law called the Leveret Marriage Law. In verse 10 through 13, there's a conversation. Rather than reading that, I want to actually read the law to you that they're talking about. It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, and it says this. If a brother or if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her widow. Now, I know in our our culture, that's just a lot to unpack right there. You're like, I don't know about that. If I die, neither of my brothers better marry my wife. Like, I'm just going to say it right now. Like, that, that's not right. But in their culture, they understood, again, the, you, when you read the genealogies, you realize that, that everything's tied to the name. The land is tied to the name. The blessing is tied to the name. And, and the situation uh, would be that we, we want to carry on this family line. And so it was called the Leveret Marriage. And the brother would marry the wife of the deceased. And so uh, Naomi's thinking this through as they're heading out of Moab. And she says, girls, don't come with me. Like, I... Your husbands are dead. I don't have another son for you to marry. And I don't have a husband to have another son. But if I had a husband and I got pregnant tonight, nine months from now, I had a son, would you wait until he grows up so he could marry you? Like, this is not gonna work. And that's what she explains in the middle part of this chapter to the girls. And after she lays all of that out, it says in verse 14, At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So in other words, Orpah does the rational thing. She realizes like, "You're, you're right. You're a widow, I'm a widow. You have no more sons. I have no more opportunity to, to carry on, um, Malon's family line. So uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna do the rational thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the sensible thing. I'm gonna do the thing that's based on the odds. But it says, but Ruth clung to her. And can I just say to all of us today, obedience beats the odds. See, it's so easy for us to wanna just make our decisions based on what, what seems right to us. But obedience always beats the odds. You can't go wrong with following the Lord's commands for your life. 
And so Ruth now begins to take center stage in the story. I'm gonna tell you why her answer was the right answer, why it was right that she clung to Naomi. It's revealed in just three words in verse 15. Look at verse 15 with me. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law's going back to her people, here's the three words, and her gods. Go back with her. See, Ruth realized something. Orpah's not just going back to find a man. Orpah's going back to Moab. Orpah's going back to the worship of these false gods. She might find a man, but she's not gonna find a Hebrew man. She's not gonna find a God-fearing man. She's not gonna find a man that's gonna lead my family in the direction that it was headed. And so for Ruth, this was about so much more than her own happiness. It was about so much more than carrying on her family name. She recognized in this moment, if I go back to Moab, I'm turning my back on the promised land and the promised giver. And so she clung to her mother-in-law. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how long Ruth was a follower of God. It might have happened during her 10 years of marriage to Kilion, but maybe not. Maybe it happened just by watching her mother-in-law after she lost her husband living in a foreign land and then lost both of her sons. And and in in the midst of all of it, Naomi never stopped trusting God. I mean, if you, if you just kind of skim over the story, I, I mean, we're gonna get to a verse here towards the end of the chapter where Naomi says, I'm bitter, like God's against me. But, but don't let that mislead you to think that God, she doesn't trust God. Because when you look at verse six, it's God's provision to his people that motivated her to go back. She heard that God was faithful. In verse nine, we saw that she prayed that God would bless both Orpah and Ruth. In verse 13, She says, the Lord's hand has turned against me, and yet still she trusts him. In other words, Naomi's not just trusting God when everything's going well. And somewhere in this relationship, Ruth was a witness to Naomi's faith that it was deeper than just trusting God in the good times, but that when everything falls apart, Naomi still acknowledged that God was in control of it all. At some point, we don't know when, but at some point, this this Moabite girl has a a genuine encounter of faith. Look at verse 16, but, but Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. That's powerful. But, but, but she's not even done yet. I mean, if you're married today, you probably stood at an altar and said a vow that, that ended with the words, till death do us part. But Ruth's vow this day was even stronger than your vow on that day because she goes on in verse 17 to say, where you die, I'll die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death, separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Ruth made up her mind. She said, I'm going with you, and I'm not just going with you back to Bethlehem. I'm gonna live where you live. I'm gonna die where you die because God's presence is connected to that land. I'm gonna be buried next to you. 
I want to be in the presence of God. The last few verses of chapter one here, we're gonna get to it. It shows us something that can happen to the strongest of Christians. It shows us how blinded we can be by our circumstances. It's why it's so important that we get our perspective by looking up. Because circumstances blind us. Look at verse 19 to 22. It says, so the two women, they went. They went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. It's interesting, the name Naomi means pleasant. And so she's been through this hardship for maybe decades of living far from God's presence and her husband died and her sons have died and she had to kiss one of her daughters-in-law goodbye and now, now she's here and everyone says, pleasant, welcome home. And she says, now I'm not the same person you used to know. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. That's what Mara means. Call me bitter. And then she says in, in, in verse one, or 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Can I tell you, bitterness blinds us. Naomi can't see the goodness of God. She said, I, I used to be full. My life was so good. Now it's completely empty. Might as well change my identity because my life is not and never will be what it used to be. And she cannot see the goodness of God. But if she would look up, I mean, if she would just take an assessment of God's faithfulness, she would see that God has been providing all along. Naomi, you don't think God is good? You just came on a 50-mile journey, just two women all by themselves through rugged terrain. You look at the topology, and, and they might have scaled mountains a mile high. And you're here. You made it safely, just you and Ruth. And have you considered Ruth? This beautiful young woman who can't be more than 30 years old, she left everything. She committed her life to you. Even when you promised widowhood and childlessness, she committed to journey with you, to be faithful to you. Have you forgotten, Naomi, that your husband was not the only one in your family? How did she forget about Boaz? Like, how did she forget that her husband had brothers? She's looking at her daughters-in-law going, I don't have any more sons. I can't do anything for you. But she's totally forgot about Boaz. Can I tell you, Boaz is the one that's going to uh, enrich her life. Boaz is the one that's going to bless her again. She forgot about him. That's what bitterness does. For some of you, bitterness has blinded you to your Boaz, your spouse, 
is your Boaz, your children, your church. God has put blessings in your life. And if you let yourself get to the place Naomi was, you can't even see it. You're living under the cloud of God's goodness and you're saying, I'm empty. I got nothing. Nothing? Really? Look up. It ain't nothing. God has been faithful. She can't see it. So she says, call me Mara. I'm bitter. You know, the first time we see that name, Mara, it's actually in Exodus 15 when Moses was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness. They spent three days in the desert. They were completely parched. They thought they were going to die. And they get to a town, and it's got water. And they, they go to drink the water, and it's bitter, and they spit it out. And they call the place Mara. We can't drink this. We're going to die. But in that story in Exodus 15, God showed Moses a piece of wood. And he took the wood and he threw it in the water. And the water was refreshed and all the people were satisfied. And in the same way, God showed Jesus a piece of wood. And he carried that cross all the way up Golgotha's hill to take away the sting of bitterness, of sin in your life. To replace bitterness for pleasantry, sorrow for joy. There's so many people that today they identify as bitter and yet they're within reach of the cross. The cross that, that cleanses a sin-sick soul. It takes what was bitter and makes it drinkable again. He wants to satisfy your life. I want you to just see the grace in the last verse and then we're gonna pray. Here's the goodness of God. These women have come all this way, and it says in verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So, so she comes back to the house of bread in harvest season. The barley's ready. She comes back home to discover there is more than enough to meet your need. Obedience is always the right next step. Moving towards God's presence is always the right next step. Maybe you're here today and you feel like Naomi you just can't see the goodness of God in your life. I want you to know if you'll take the next right step towards God's presence and not away from it, what you're gonna find is that the best is yet to come. He's not done writing your story for his glory. It's why you're here. And it might, it might look like loss or defeat or pain. And, and none of, I don't wanna take away from any of those realities. But don't you take away from the reality that God is a redeemer. God is a restorer. He can take the broken things and the bitter things and he can make them whole again. I wanna invite you to stand with me all over this room. I wanna pray for you as we end this service. 
my heart this week just kept coming back. To verse 15 and 16 of that chapter where, where Orpah makes a rational decision, the path of least resistance. She played the odds. She tried to find happiness, pursuing the, the dream. But Ruth made the hard decision. It says Ruth clung to her. And I want to just encourage you today to cling to your Savior, to cling to Jesus this morning. Say, there's no quick fix here. There's no guarantee. I don't know tomorrow, but I know who knows tomorrow. And I don't know how long the yet will last. But stay in the story that he's writing. Don't pin your own. Stick with the story. Stay with the process. Father, today, I just thank you for every person that's here in this room this morning. I know many of them are are struggling today with decisions. And Satan is tempting them to do the easy thing. Maybe even to do the thing that seems the most rational in the natural. Maybe for somebody today, they've got good reason to put off Christ. Good reason to pursue another avenue of finding hope, of finding happiness. But today, Lord, I thank you that through this story of Naomi and Ruth, you're calling us to get back to your presence. Jesus, you said, I am the bread of life. We want to get back to the house of bread. We want to trust you to provide for us, to provide for our children, to provide for our future, for all of the thousands of things we don't know about tomorrow, God. We know today the next step is a step towards your presence. And we believe, Jesus, that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Come on, if you believe that's true today, would you give God some praise this morning? Amen. Amen. Listen, as we end the service, uh, some of our altar team is coming back to the front of the room. And I just want to say to you, if in this moment, these last few moments of the service, if this was a a come to Jesus moment for you, and you said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. Listen, you have to make that decision alone. But you don't have to follow him alone. And I want you to know this church is here to walk with you. We want to resource you. We want to partner with you. In the same way that Ruth clung to Naomi, the church has called us to come alongside of one another and walk together. So if, that's, if you're here today and you say, man, I just made a decision to, to come to Jesus, or maybe you're coming back after a long way gone in a foreign land. You're saying, I'm coming back today. Before you leave, could I encourage you to come and find one of these prayer partners up here? Let them encourage you. Let them pray for you personally and lift your name up to the throne of grace before you leave. These altars are open. You can come now. God bless you, church. Thanks for being here. Happy Grandparents Day.